Are there warning lights for the consumer guarantees? No, but the ones in your car could be an indicator. Hey, Gregor, any indications for today's show? Well, today's case is about luxury vehicles, so hopefully we'll stick to the theme of uh, smooth and quick. Uh, although the car there did turn out to be a dud, so... Hmm. G'day and welcome to episode 9 of Keeping Up With The Consumer Law. As always, I'm Joel Lisk and I'm joined by Joel Greger. As always, I'm Joel Greger, apparently. That, that's good. Um, full name, as always, Joel Greger. Thank you. Um, now, you're joining us after a fortnight of life events for some of us um, and flight delays to the others. So we thought we'd come back to the solace and the refuge that is podcasts um, for a bit more of an explanation into consumer guarantees. And this fortnight, after the weekend that's just gone with one of the most glamorous events in the Formula One calendar, being the Monaco Grand Prix, we thought it would be appropriate to delve into the realm of secondhand luxury vehicles. Um, And in this episode, we're talking about the 2017 decision of Prestige Auto Traders and Bonifan that was in the New South Wales Supreme Court. So, Joel, what does this episode have in store for us? Yeah, well, we're not quite hitting the uh, dazzling speeds of the F1 in Monaco, that's for sure. Uh, quite the opposite. So we're having a look at the consumer guarantees, particularly here, how they apply to secondhand vehicles and when it might breach that ACL guarantee of acceptable quality. Uh, so this is continuing on from our conversation last episode about Jayco in episode eight. We're also going to have a, a bit of more of a look at um, how consumers are able to bring an action themselves, how they're able to follow through and, and hold a, a business accountable rather than just relying on the ACCC. So a bit to get into. Um, just before we race into the episode, of course, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Law Foundation of South Australia, for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. And of course, if you are interested in keeping up with the consumer law, you can follow us on our socials, being Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, if you have any questions as we go along, feel free to hit us up on those socials. So into prestige, what actually happened here, Gregor? Yes, look, there's a fair bit of detail here and I'm going to do my absolute best not to get bogged down in it. But that Please. tediousness of the back and forth that took place here is super important. It's it's that frustration that the consumer was in is really relevant. Um, so we, we do need to cover it a bit, but I'll try to take a high level skim through it. Uh, what we're looking at here is whether the consumer guarantee as to acceptable quality was breached and whether it amounted to a major failure or being unable to be repaired. They're important terms, which we'll um, unpack later when we circle back around. But this one really comes down to the facts. Uh, So I'm going to skim over it a bit. We're going to include a link. I'm sure when you publish our notes list, you'll include a link for the full case, won't you? Of course I will. Yeah, cool. So if if you want to see the full details, you can go over a look there. Alrighty, yo. So, what we've got the parties involved here, we've got uh, Mrs. Bonifan, uh, the plaintiff, bought a 2007 BMW X5 V8 four wheel drive vehicle uh, for $37,750. I'll probably just call it the BMW from here, uh, off of a dealership, uh, Prestige Auto Traders Australia, PTY LTD. Probably just call them Prestige, I reckon. So this was purchased on the 13th of October, 2014, took possession on the 1st of November, 2014. At the time, that BMW had about 91,000 kilometers on the odometer there. So 
that plaintiff bought the BMW uh, primarily for its full drive function to be able to tow jet skis, reverse down boat ramps, that type of fun stuff. Bought it in her name, so she's the plaintiff, uh, but her husband drove the vehicle and was um, involved throughout and was primarily the one dealing with um, the dealership when issues took place here. So we're paraphrasing a little bit for full disclosure, but more or less, this is what's happened. Within 20 days of uh, the the Bonifans taking possession of the BMW, they started experiencing some problems, uh, having mechanical failures and and defects taking place there. So on the 20th of November, coolant in in the reservoir was shown as low, so um, the plaintiff's husband replaced that. On the 16th of December, had an error message uh, four times four, so the 4x4 and DSC have failed appearing on the dashboard. Now, what that means is um, when that popped up, cruise control function could no longer be turned on, uh, nor could what's called the dynamic stability control. That's the DSC. It's it's kind of like traction control, but at a bit more of an advanced level. Uh, You also couldn't use the four-wheel drive function. So straight away, we're, we're not able to use it for a bunch of those reasons that it was actually bought for. Uh, when that was occurring, so that warning error flashing, or I don't know if it's flashing, but when it was displaying, that led to the vehicle slowing down and, and speeding up at irregular intervals, uh, less than ideal when, you, when you're driving. So on the 16th of December, uh, the plaintiff returned the BMW to Prestige to have that issue fixed. On the 22nd, uh, BMW was returned to the plaintiff uh, Prestige replaced the coolant expansion tank, so that's where the, the coolant um, resides, under the warranty. So this is a statutory warranty. We'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, they told the plaintiff that the leaking coolant's fixed, but they didn't know why that 4x4 and DSC of failed message was appearing, and, and they weren't able to fix that. So that was 22nd of December. 3rd of January, uh, 2015, the plane was going on a trip. Uh, the BMW started slowing and stopping autonomously at regular intervals. Really not what you want on a long drive. Uh, and that was with that error message, 4x4 and DSC has failed uh, appearing on the dashboard. When they stopped the car, when they got to their destination, it wouldn't restart. Uh, they've called the NRMA, so Roadside Assistance in, in New South Wales there. Uh, but... In the meantime, they then were able to start the BMW. They've cancelled the roadside assistance call. Uh, shortly after, they're back on the trip. Warning light appeared on the dashboard. Again, when they stopped the vehicle, couldn't restart. Again, called roadside assistance and eventually started and cancelled roadside assistance. So anyway, at their destination, then on the next day, they um vehicle again wouldn't start. Had that error 4x4 and DSC failed message appearing. Remember, this is about two months after they've bought this vehicle. Uh, and so the vehicle had to be towed away to a third-party mechanic at the destination where they were because they, they went on a road trip. Uh, so on the phone, plaintiff's husband uh, calls up and speaks to a mechanic at Prestige at the dealership because they've got their on-site mechanics uh, and was told it might be an alternator problem. So the plaintiff collects a BMW from the third-party mechanic who's run diagnostic tests on it at that point, and it's identified various errors. So I don't know how much experience you've had with um, with diagnostics. Lisk, have you ever had to play around with that? No. I, I don't think my car's smart enough to have a diagnostics test. No, you... you, you, you <laughs> It won't be just flat to you, but essentially you've got like this handheld computer device which you plug in under your steering wheel there and um, it, it tells you more or less what's wrong with it. But um, 
I don't think the Mazda 2 ever has issues, does it? It's pretty much indestructible. Well, it hasn't been serviced in three, four years, so no, it's fine. My highlights has definitely displayed a few error messages. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting distracted here. So the mechanic, the third-party mechanic, they've run these diagnostics and they've identified a number of errors. They've refitted uh, some stuff with the engine and stuff and reset the computers and did a test drive and seemed to be going okay. He's told them, look, I can't work out why that error message is appearing. Uh, again, heavily paraphrasing. Um but also said you've also got an issue with your front cast amounts here. Uh, they're weak. They should be replaced. They're going to be covered under your statutory guarantee with your dealer. So at this point, uh, 10th of January, plaintiffs have returned that BMW to Prestige. The husband sent an email saying, um, we need this warning light and deactivation of cruise control to be fixed. We need the replacement of these cast amounts that the mechanics pointed out um, at the third-party mechanic. He also just noted to Prestige that he'd been told it wasn't necessary to diagnose the problem uh, with that light whilst it was displaying, uh, and so they should be able to get it done even if it wasn't displaying at the time. But Prestige said it's not so much about finding the the diagnostic report. It's about how you interpret those codes and go about fixing it. So this is kind of (laughs) the... The environment it's existing in. Uh, so that was 10 January. 24th of January, the plaintiffs collect the BMW from Prestige. They found that the cast amounts haven't been re- replaced, which they've asked to be replaced, and Prestige were unable to de- detect any problem with the DSE or the full drive functions. The next day, uh, so the 25th, the warning sign has appeared again, indicating coolant low and needs to be refilled. So this is the coolant issue playing up again. So five days later, now this is important because it's 30th of January. Yeah, remember they picked it up on the 1st of November. So we're talking three months. Three months is an important thing. The plaintiff's then gone and taken the BMW to another mechanic so another third-party mechanic to try and identify the fault taking place here. And he did that to do so before the statutory warranty expired. Now, the fault wasn't able to be identified and the mechanic told the plaintiff that the battery should be replaced, uh, saying that this um, 4x4 and DSC warning uh, can appear when the batteries have got a low voltage and also said you need to replace those front caster bushes. Uh, so the next day, back at uh, email and prestige again, setting out all the problems that uh, the BMW has saying, we're going to bring it in. We want all these issues fixed. We don't want to keep bringing this back regularly. Fix it now. 13th of February, they've returned the BMW to Prestige uh, to fix all the problems set out in the email. The BMW at that point is left with Prestige. It's important for what takes place that the car is then in possession of Prestige at this point. 16th of February, so three days later, uh, Prestige uh, told the the plaintiff's husband that they would not fix the leaking coolant because the vehicle was now out of warranty as it had driven more than 5,000 kilometres since purchase. They could not do anything about the failure of the full drive as no problem could be detected and they could not do anything about the caster bushes as they were not covered by the statutory guarantee. At that point, uh, the plaintiff hasn't collected the vehicle from Prestige. Rather, on the 24th of Feb, uh, the plaintiff's husband emailed Prestige rejecting the vehicle and requesting a refund of that purchase price on on behalf of his wife. The same day, uh, the plaintiff's husband and the general general manager of Prestige uh, spoke on the phone. Uh, Now, this is evidence of the plaintiff's husband in in the trial Um, and kind of how that phone call went from the the plaintiff's husband's deposition was uh, the general manager was saying, well, we're not going to issue a refund. The car's done too many kilometres. 
Mr. Bonifan saying, well, the 4x4 failure happened very early on after not many Ks. Um, your service department could not or would not rectify the problem on three separate occasions. We've had to put up with a faulty, unreliable car for the whole of the three-month warranty period, and for us, the cruise control is a significant problem. The manager is then said to have said that the cruise control ceasing to work is not a warranty item. It's not my problem if it stops working. There's nothing further I'm willing to do other than to get my service team to take a look at the car, and the response to that is, well, the car's already been to your service department three times, including one time for two weeks. They couldn't or, or wouldn't fix the car. To then we're told the response is we aren't finding any fault codes related to the 4x4 coming up on the computer, so we can't fix it. You can complain to fair trading if you want. So what happened from there? Uh, did they complain to fair trading? No, they took matters into their own hands. Well, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if they complained or not, but... <laughs> More importantly, they took matters into their own hands here and, and, and followed through. So on the 13th of March, uh, the plaintiff's solicitor wrote to Prestige asserting that the plaintiff has given notice of rejection of the vehicle on that 24th of Feb and that the solicitor described the problems and deficiencies. And I think this is just a good quick little recap if you tuned out from the last 12 minutes of me talking there. The deficiencies are there's leaks in the coolant reservoir, the disablement of the 4x4 function, the disablement of the cruise control function, the loosening of the front cast amounts, and the constant error message on the onboard computer system. So these were problems that hadn't been repaired to date, uh, despite the Bonifans' repeated efforts to notify and return the vehicle uh, for servicing during that period. Uh, and then on the 8th of April, uh, the plaintiffs commenced proceedings against Prestige. Jeez, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. there was quite a bit to get through there. Uh, that was my best attempt at doing it succinctly. Yeah, you, you feel pretty bad for the Bonifans, I guess, after all of that. You know, you've bought this, you know, it's not a new car and it's not as much as a new car would cost, but you've spent a lot of money on what is meant to be a good car, I'd guess. And it's just gone... Like the drama has gone on and on and on. Like this, this is a this is a mini series, isn't it? I mean, it? I feel frustrated just having to try to condense that into eleven minutes. Like not actually even being part of the situation. So uh, yeah, no, you can really. You, that's why I just think it is really important to see the the absolute tediousness of that process for them and how frustrating it would have been. Yeah, you've you've bought what is still a good vehicle, and that's one of the points that the court got to in this was yep it's second hand and yep it's it, you've purchased it for less but it's still a good vehicle and I was yeah. say, this is this is the stuff that um, episodes of a current affair are made out of like, <laughs> get Tracy onto anyway, them you reckon Lisk well it's not Tracy no, it's not, she's but, retired you need to remember but anyway moving on to it so right at the end there you kind of mentioned that the Bonifans took the nuclear option they've gone to court so why were they able to do that yeah, so this is really your classic case of just because a business is telling you one thing, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how it is. So the question here centers around whether uh, the Bonifans were entitled to reject the vehicle based on what's taken place and, and seek associated damages. Now, why this might be possible for her, despite what the dealership has said, is that, well, firstly, the plaintiff's car just wasn't working. Yeah, it's, it seems pretty clear that it's a lemon. And then you've got these consumer guarantees that apply to situations like this. So the car dealer has a responsibility to ensure that the product is what we call of an acceptable quality. Okay. So 
we're talking about some some different concepts of law here. Like we know the consumer guarantees apply. The episode is calling it's called driving into the consumer guarantees. Um, but you've also said something about statutory warranties that are quite important and a couple of references to a three-month period. So what's happening? Yeah, cool. So two main pieces of legislation applied here. Firstly, there is the state-based statutory dealer guarantees. And so that covers defective vehicles and that applied to the sale of the BMW. So in New South Wales, it's the Motor Dealers and Repairers Act 2013. Uh, we've got similar uh, legislation where we're hit, where we are in South Australia here, Liskin, and I've actually I've actually used it previously. Um, was was quite useful when I bought my Hilux. Uh, but what that is, the dealer guarantees. Uh, they have to. It's in the statute. They have to guarantee the for the vehicle for a particular amount of time in New South Wales it was subject to a time limit of three months after sale or a distance limit of 5,000 kilometres after uh, the sale and that's what the plaintiff was relying on uh, when they were taking the BMW back to the dealership each time so they weren't paying for prestige mechanic to go and uh, try to fix these faults each time they were taking it back under this uh, statutory warranty so that's what was taking place there However, as we've covered, Prestige ultimately failed to fix uh, it under that warranty. And now I, I actually, I assume there would be some avenues under that warranty. I haven't looked into it too far in, in, the, in, in that particular act with New South Wales. But here, the plaintiffs actually then brought litigation pursuant to the ACL anyway. So they brought it pursuant to the consumer guarantee after the dealer was failing to meet the requirements of their statutory warranties. Okay, so we've got a consumer bringing an action under the Australian Consumer Law themselves. We're not really talking about that New South Wales statutory warranty because, well, this isn't keeping up with the secondhand cars law podcast. This is the Consumer Law podcast. That, that might be our so, next uh, venture. Yeah, keeping up with the secondhand dealers, secondhand car dealers law sounds awesome. Maybe we anyway, should just be a current affair. <laughs> I just go shove the mic into someone's face and hope for the best. Um, so, <laughs> bringing it back, um, we've been talking a lot about the federal court. Um, a, I like the federal court; it's a nice, clean jurisdiction to talk about. But that's not what we're talking about here, is it? No. So this one's a little bit different. So this one actually started off uh, at trial in the magistrate's court in New South Wales, uh, where the plaintiff succeeded in showing that there was a breach of the ACL and that because of that they were entitled to, to reject the vehicle and, and claim damages. From there, it was appealed by prestige to the Supreme Court and that's the decision uh, that you mentioned at the start there and what we've read up on for this episode. Uh, and ultimately, with that appeal, prestige were unsuccessful in that appeal, uh, which we're about to get into why. Uh, so the decision in favour of the plaintiff uh, remained. So the Bonifans still win. Yeah, yeah, um, the, bon the, the Bonifans were still successful. Yeah, and so I think it's important to do a, a quick sidebar on point of law here, of course. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we've talked about the idea of magistrates and local courts, um, and that's really important. So as discussed in some previous episodes, um, enforcing the consumer guarantees can be hard and it can be extremely costly in some circumstances. Um, and we've mainly been talking about federal and Supreme Courts, which are really, really high level courts um, that involve generally high cost disputes. So lots of money is involved or there's a regulator like the HCC seeking a penalty and those courts can impose those penalties. Now, the magistrate's court um, 
are the lowest level courts in a lot of jurisdictions. Occasionally, they have some different names depending on which state you're in, but but generally, you have these magistrates who can look at small claims or small civil claims. Um, and this is where sometimes when it reaches the what I called before the nuclear option of going to court, that's where some of these consumer guarantee claims are filed because they're lower cost courts. There are rules about how much lawyers can recover. There are rules about how much um, money the court can order and what the costs are. So it's actually a slightly better jurisdiction to bring a claim in. Uh, still expensive, still not the best option, but... And there's even rules about whether lawyers are allowed to appear on your behalf. So, for instance, in South Australia, in the minor civil claims, uh, there's actually rules where unless allowance is is given, the parties have to make their own case. They they need to represent themselves. So, um, yeah, good one to cover. I I think sometimes there can be a case to be made for trial by combat on consumer guarantee matters. but anyway, back on the serious point. So the next, point, the next so. lot of law reforms, you, you're wanting to see a coliseum type arrangement or, or something like that. Well, we have these grand buildings in the middle of our cities that are really just, you know, for theatrical court cases. We could do it. Why can't we go back? We could do like a race down the staircase in the um, in the Samuel Way building. That would be pretty interesting, as long as it's not raining, because I know they have to put the buckets out when the roof is leaking. Um, but. Going back to this case and not my version of trial by combat. Um, so what were the plaintiff's actual arguments then? And why did the court ultimately find twice in the magistrates and the Supreme Court that they were actually, the Bonifans were entitled to reject the BMW? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of totally lost uh, where I was going with everything here. But um, so essentially, it all comes down to being rely on that, uh, being able to rely on that consumer guarantee. And so that's uh, section 54, the guarantee that goods are going to be of an acceptable quality. We spoke about it at length in uh, ACCC and JCO, so I'm going to fly over it a bit now. Uh, but it applies to supply of goods, which this was, in trade or commerce, which this was, to a consumer. So that was all fine here. Now, whether it is of acceptable quality, that's determined by looking at a range of things. And essentially, it's was it fit for all the purposes uh, for which that good's commonly supplied? Uh, is it acceptable in appearance and finish? Is it free from defects? Is it safe? Is it durable? And that's all to the level that a reasonable consumer uh, that's fully acquainted with the state and condition of those goods would regard as acceptable. Now, this is determined... Uh, by having regard to, and this is all set out within those sections and subsections, you have regard to the nature of the goods, uh, the price of the goods, if, if that's relevant, and maybe any statements made about the goods uh, on any labels or packaging and any representations made uh, by the supplier and uh, really any other circumstances that seem like they might be relevant. So Prestige here disputed that they had breached this provision, uh, that this guarantee is to acceptable quality. Uh, but as we've already covered, the plaintiff here was successful in, in proving at trial that they had indeed uh, breached it. So why was that the case? What the court found was despite the BMW being a second-hand vehicle and having done 91,000 kilometres and, and being approximately a third of the purchase price of a new similar vehicle... That purchase price, $37,750, was still a significant amount for a motor vehicle. Uh, Her Honour found that taking into account the matters to be considered in that section, 
a reasonable consumer would expect that the 4x4 DSC in cruise control would work without repeated failure. So because of that, we've, well, we've got a breach. I think that's relatively accepted, isn't it? You're not going to find a car that's commonly broken, right? I wouldn't think so. I, I mean, I mean, you'll definitely find one commonly broken, but I don't think you're going to have a, a reasonable consumer saying that's acceptable. Yeah, I was going to say, unless you're buying your car from the wreckers yard, I don't really think you expect it to be constantly broken. That's it. And that, and that's about when you go back to the nature of the goods, uh, the price, any other relevant circumstances. If you're buying it from a car wrecker or off the side of the road as opposed to a, um, a um, luxury vehicle dealership. And, and so that, that's kind of the point of, of these provisions is you take all these things on board and, and what's acceptable for one vehicle definitely won't be the case for another based on those surrounding circumstances. And furthermore, that light that was displaying... When you consider that together with the cruise control, it was more than just the failure of, of a dash light system. Like it wasn't just that there was a, a light displaying wrong. This was a real unexplained defect. The vehicle it was sold as a four-wheel drive with, cru- with cruise control uh, and there was a defect in relation to those two features. Also, that repeated leaking of the coolant uh, can also be regarded as a defect. And so quite simply, the vehicle was not of acceptable quality here. Now, Prestige ultimately did not uh, appeal that finding. They dropped that prior to the hearing. They initially appealed it and then dropped it. So at this point, where you're sitting with the with the arguments is that the guarantee was breached. Yep, the magistrate's court has found that and that point wasn't ultimately appealed. So the guarantee is to acceptable quality has been breached. Now it's an issue of what can be done about that. So what can the Bonifans, uh, I assume it's how you say their name, um, the, the, the plaintiffs, what can they achieve? What, what can be given to them? So we look to some further ACL provisions now that, that are relevant. And that's because uh, that provision in 54 has been breached. Now, really important, the plaintiffs just didn't want the car fixed. They're frustrated. They've been through this process for three, four months now. They don't want it fixed. They just want to reject it and be refunded. They just want their money back. And and um, they can also get some other damages for, for costs that they've incurred as a result. So because of this, the ideal remedy for them is they wanted to assert this right to reject. Uh, that's under Section 259. Going to try to not go into too much detail about the section, so... This really comes down to whether there was a failure to comply that amounted to it either being what we call a major failure or that it was unable to be fixed or that if it were not a major failure and it was able to be remedied, well, then it would require that the consumers or the plaintiffs uh, required the dealership to remedy the failure in a reasonable time and the dealership refused or failed to comply either at all or in a reasonable time. Yeah, so it's got to meet one of those scenarios for them to be able to reject the good. And so uh, okay. one of the other subsections there also says that well, they're also entitled to damages um, uh, if it was reasonably foreseeable that the consumer would suffer a loss. And, and so they, they also claim some damages there for like the um, transfer fees. And I think maybe it might have been a third-party mechanic fee or something like that. So... I guess the one of the last things to really touch on here is what amounts to a major failure? What is it that you're looking for to show that's been the case? 
Well, it really depends on the scenario again, but it can include uh, when goods would not have been acquired by a reasonable consumer when they're fully acquainted with the nature and the extent of the failures. So here you see a change in the language. It's pretty similar to that acceptable quality stuff, but rather than saying that a reasonable consumer would find it acceptable, which is the 54 requirement, here what we're looking at is that it would not have been acquired. So similar, but slight differences. It's just, I think, important to notice when there are some slight differences in the terminology. So it's about that it wouldn't have been acquired by a reasonable consumer. Uh, there's also this point that it's substantially unfit for the purpose uh, for which those goods are supplied uh, and it can't be remedied in a, in a reasonable time. And then depending on how it was sold, it might be that, you know, it departs from how it was described or the sample or if a particular reason was disclosed for the use and made known that that, that it didn't meet it or uh, quite simply that the goods are not of acceptable quality because they are unsafe. That can also be a reason for it to be a major failure. So there's also this issue of the rejection having been done within the rejection period. So you can't sit on this for ages. You can't sit with it and think, oh, I'll just see how it goes and a long way down the track, call up the dealership and say, oh, actually, I don't want this car anymore. You, you've got a certain amount of time that you have to act within. And what that is, it's the period from the time of the supply of those goods to the consumer uh, within a time that would be reasonable to expect the relevant failure to become apparent. And you work that out by looking at the type of the good, uh, the use that it's been put to, the length of time that it'd be reasonable for them to be doing that use and the amount of time that it'd be reasonable, the amount of use that would be reasonable for that failure to, to take place and arise. And, and that's a really interesting point because this is where I think when we talk about our more common consumer goods like our TVs and our fridges and like other domestic products, I think sometimes you might see the claim that products are reasonably fit for purpose for a reasonable period of time. So you might see it on, uh, instead of a, instead of an extended warranty, you might see Australian consumer law stuff or other things that say that your product is guaranteed to be of acceptable quality for a reasonable period of time. Um, and that's where a lot of this stuff comes into play is this idea of a re rejection period, of course, can will vary depending on the goods, but it exists. So you have a little bit of time for a defect to appear um, and that defect may just simply be your washing machine stops working and it's then determined by these same factors and that's what's really important here yeah exactly uh and whether it's a whether it makes it harder or not but this section 262 doesn't actually specify a rejection period for particular goods it's it's left to work out so it's a matter of, uh on the fact for, for, for each matter and you've got to decide it based on those things that we spoke about so at the trial uh, it was found that the vehicle was rejected within that relevant period uh now when that rejection email got sent through you remember that was in february so we're talking about it's after the three months and it sounds like it was after the 5000 k so there's this whole argument of well it wasn't done within the statutory warranty time um, interestingly, there's actually nothing in the ACL saying that the statutory warranty time is relevant as the rejection period, but that was kind of what was being put. Um, but what the court kind of settled on was, um, well, no, it was rejected because complaints were made within that time and they weren't rectified. So, you know, even though technically the email saying it was rejected came after that statutory period, which, again, isn't the peel and end all, but because they were making a complaint which wasn't rectified, it got through. 
And so all of that, that was actually one of the main issues in the appeal. It was a lot of this stuff about when it was allowed to be rejected and if that was done correctly and if there was some, you know, typical appeal stuff about whether there was procedural fairness and evidentiary issues and that type of stuff. But that was all dismissed by the Supreme Court there. So we don't really need to worry about it too much. For our purposes, the court found uh, as far as being entitled to reject that vehicle, the Bonifans, they are allowed to do that, uh, both on the basis that, well, there had been a failure that could not be remedied, as Prestige had been saying, we're unable to fix this, but also on the basis of it being a major failure. Cool. So a lot a lot happening from a lot of different angles. Like we've we've started with a secondhand car with a both a statutory guarantee and the Australian Consumer Law guarantees, a heap of problems with that car that can't be fixed in a reasonable period of time or in some respects just can't be fixed. Um, some plaintiffs in the Bonifans who have actually taken the, the actual extreme option of going to court to enforce their consumer guarantee rights, then facing both the magistrate's court or the local court, I think it was, and then a Supreme Court appeal where they have to get into a heap of the more technical details all at the end of the day for the court to go, well, no, it was a major failure. You were entitled to your money back. You were entitled to reject the good. Is that a pretty good summary of what happened here? I think that's a pretty good summary of the frustrations for the, uh, the plaintiffs in this case. Spot on. Well, I can see the frustration, I think, on your face. Ah, oh, it's um, just a lot pain. of It's just a lot of technical stuff to go through and try to get through it in the uh, smoothest way possible. I don't know if I've succeeded there or not, but it's done. Screw it, we got there. Well, I still don't know what a caster mount or a caster bush is, and I don't think I want to know. So, um, with that, I'm going to leave it as like this enigma of something I don't know, and go. Are there any key takeaways and final points for this one? Yeah, so look, I just think this is a good example of even though a business uh, says that a particular fault might not be covered, that's not always going to be the case. Yeah, that's their position. Sure, that doesn't mean that's what the law is. And also where the failure is substantial enough or or it can't be repaired or or repairs refused, there's this ability to reject the good and and request the refund uh, and possibly other damages depending on the facts. Uh, I think it's also important to note there, you know, if a business is potentially going to repair it, get on with it quick. Don't leave it for ages um, because they've got to act within a reasonable time. Otherwise, yeah, it, it can be rejected when it may not have been in the case for something that wasn't a major failure. As far as takeaways go, um, why this case? I think it's a good example of a consumer litigating their rights, uh, which is which is quite interesting. Um, and then I think it's also an important reminder that ACL guarantees, they do still apply to secondhand goods. You don't need to be purchasing something brand new to have consumer law applied to that sale. Awesome. I'm going to put a caveat on that though. Please don't do. Expect to enforce, don't expect to enforce the consumer guarantees on the rubbish you're buying off marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a stack of limitations and that's that, uh, you know, within trade or commerce. And so don't go throwing this around uh, in in personal uh, purchases between parties not in a business. You'll just look like a toss. But it does matter for the crap you might buy from cash converters. So there's two ways. Yeah. If you're buying crap from a um, uh, from a, a professional business, you you enforce your rights against that crap. Yeah. Well, 
With that, that brings us to the end of episode nine. Um, thank you for joining us on this sprint through defective secondhand goods. Did you see what I did there? I got another racing reference in. Um, I did. As, I, I enjoyed about, that list. Thank you. Thank you for also pointing yeah, um, out that it was a joke. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I need to do that because otherwise no one will get it. Um, Wasn't that good? With that, I need to flag one of our upcoming episodes. It's I actually going to be... What? Flag. Didn't even think about it myself. Anyway, back onto that. One of our upcoming episodes, we're going to dedicate to answering your questions about the Australian consumer law. So if you have a question, flick it on through to us through our social channels or on our website. If you're listening to the podcast on a, on Spotify, I don't, so I have no idea how to do this, but you can actually ask us questions directly in the app while you're listening to the episode. I think it should just pop up somewhere in the app and the question will be there. Do you have any questions about the Australian consumer law? And you can drop them straight in. Is that right, Gregor? Yes. I was just having a look at it then. And um, I mean, I haven't submitted you a question yet, but up until that point, it looks like it works. So I'm, um, I might, yeah, I might go ask you my questions. Yeah. Um, As always, thank you to the Law Foundation of South Australia for their financial support in making this podcast happen. Um, Everything we talk about in these episodes, of course, is legal education and opinions. None of it's actually legal advice. If anything you've heard raises questions for you around what your rights and entitlements are at law, you can head over to our website in the legal advice section to work out what your options might be. Um, As always, follow us on our social medias. You can hit us up on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. I mucked up the order there for a change. I'm lucky I got through all of them. To wrap up, in our next episode, we're talking about disappointing cruises. Have you had a disappointing trip of late, Lisk? Trip? Yeah. I wouldn't call it disappointing. I, I, I think I got, I really enjoyed the extra 24 hours and nap on the floor of an airport. What, what, what is the Dallas airport floor like for sleeping on? Very Texan. 